That is where I put my sermon notes. That's good to know. Well, good morning once again. One Saturday morning in a small town called Nazareth, a local boy came home after doing some traveling in the area, and he walked into his home synagogue on that Sabbath, and they handed him the scroll to do that morning's scripture reading. And the scroll they handed him happened to be the book of Isaiah. This man unrolled the scroll and he found and read these following words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he finished reading this, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the guy, and went and sat down, and every eye was fixed on him in expectation. And he finally began to teach them, and the first words of his lesson were, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. And that's how Jesus of Nazareth taught that he is the one speaking in Isaiah 61. Those words that he read were not just words about him, but they are his words written down some 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. And as he continued to teach that day in Nazareth and throughout his earthly ministry, This ministry of proclamation, good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and the year of the Lord's favor is exactly what he was doing. So Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. It is his voice that we hear, and it's through his ministry that God fulfills the promises that we hear in this prophecy. Through his death and resurrection, we are given all the promises of Isaiah 61. So what I want most for us this morning is to hear the voice of our Savior in the words of Isaiah chapter 61 and know the joy that he has promised to us. Just a side note, the text I'm looking at, we're not necessarily looking at it verse by verse per se, but I'm looking at all of chapter 61. Again, I didn't make our scripture readers read all of it this morning, so you can thank me later. And as I said last week, uh, my love language is cookies. So if you have been well trained in reading the Old Testament, you might feel like I'm pulling a bit of a fast one here. Shouldn't we start with what this passage means in its original context before just starting off and saying it's about Jesus. And uh, certainly there is something to considering the original context. God sent Isaiah to call out Israel's sin to warn them of the judgment that was coming on the nation because of their unrepentant sin and also to hold out this hope of redemption that lies beyond the judgment. But clearly that redemption even for its original hearers, it just had to point beyond Israel's deliverance from their, their exile. We saw it a couple weeks ago. There were uh, this imagery of wolves and lambs hanging out together and lions grazing next to cows instead of grazing on the cows and little kids playing with snakes that aren't made out of Play-Doh. So even in its Old Testament context, 
Isaiah was pointing to a whole new creation, a redemption that encompassed not just the events of Israel, but the whole earth. And Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these promises. Just another note before we dig in here at the same point, at the same time, we, we also recognize that Christ, who fulfills all the promises of Isaiah 61, does not fully accomplish everything we see here in an instant. His own reading, I think it's fairly significant, uh, stopped uh, at the midpoint of verse 2 there. He got to the year of the Lord's favor, but omitted the day of vengeance of our God. Uh, Christ showed God's favor to people, but the way he read this gives you the sense that that day of judgment is reserved for the future. As we confess, he shall return to judge the living and the dead. So the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 is both an already and a not yet kind of fulfillment, as we like to say. Already inaugurated in Christ and not yet fully consummated as theology nerds like to put it. And that dynamic of already and not yet, I think makes joy the most difficult Advent theme to talk about. For me, this was the most challenging to prepare. And by, by, by the way, at some point here, I just have to give this annual public service announcement that if you have an Advent wreath that has the three purple candles and one pink one at home, today is pink candle day. Advent is traditionally has been a, a somber season uh, for most of, of church history whenever Advent has been observed, and the pink candle represents a break, sort of, from the, the somber mood of, of expectation uh, and a, a day of, of rejoicing. And the joy is really the upshot of what Christ gives his people in uh, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 7. Uh, list benefits that are given to God's people, and the last one in verse 7, they shall have everlasting joy, is the culmination of where all of this is going. But as I mentioned, uh, it can be difficult uh, to figure out how exactly do we want to talk about this joy. There are two ways we can go wrong, both having to do with that already and the not yet. We can we can overemphasize the fact that the aspects of joy that are not yet here. And we are promised joy when Christ returns. Meanwhile, our lives are pure misery, right? We can paint a picture of how bleak and depressing life is right now and how joy is just this faint, faint glimmer of the candlelight that enables us to make it through our otherwise wretched existence. I could preach a message about joy that turns out to be uh, fairly depressing. Uh, that's probably my natural tendency, is to be fairly depressing. But on the other hand, we could overemphasize the already. You know, just trust God, you'll be so joyful that you positively can't stand it. Just keep on the sunny side, smile, because God loves you, don't worry, be happy, and start singing that song. I could preach a very glib sermon, it might take some, some effort for me personally, but that, one that makes it sound like joy is purely easy for us to achieve, on our own, if you're not rejoicing, it's your own fault, and thus place a crushing burden of guilt on anyone who is wrestling with grief or stress or anxiety, depression of any kind. So those are the ditches on either side that we want to avoid, and I think the way to avoid them is just to follow the way that the Bible talks about this. For the rest of the sermon, 
Like I said, I'm not going to go verse by verse, but I just want to point to three features of this text, three ways that Jesus, the one who is speaking or indeed singing here, uh, the way he communicates to us about the joy that he brings. So three major points. And the first one, really the big overarching point here, is that joy is a gift. The joy that we receive, that we celebrate, is a gift of God's grace. So Isaiah 61, it's part of a larger passage that begins somewhere around the beginning of chapter 60, and that larger passage is itself a response to a very dark uh, description that we see in Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, uh, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you just to turn there. I'm not necessarily going to look, but you can just scan through the description of uh, what the nation is like. Chapter 59, verse 2, talks about their sin that has separated them from God. And you see in the rest of the chapter, it results in human misery on all sorts of levels. Isaiah depicts the people as stumbling in the dark and growling like bears and moaning and moaning like doves. The nation is in total misery because of sin. And Isaiah points out that whoever does try to turn away from sin just becomes prey for the wicked people around them. So they are stuck in utter misery, and they can't get out of it. It's because of their own sin. So the point is simple, maybe, and easy to take for granted, but I want to make sure we don't miss it, that God's response to their misery is not a list of instructions. It is a list of promises. He does not tell them, how to fix what's wrong with their country, or how to put their own lives in order. God promises to come to them in salvation and judgment, to deal with the sin and to bring joy where there is suffering and sorrow. He promises that he himself will be the one to restore them and to make them the people they were meant to be. And so here in chapter 61, the crucial thing to notice is that joyful restoration is about God. It's God's work for God's purposes and God's glory from beginning to end. If we go back to verse 1, we see that God is the author of this salvation through Christ, who says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So the Spirit resting upon the Father's anointed Son. This is the power that drives even the proclamation of redemption. And the key content of that proclamation is once again God. In verse 2, it is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All the benefits that are received here are tokens of God's favor. We might say God's grace, since that favor is unmerited. Verse 3, it's an interesting picture of the final goal for all of this, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It is a striking and and beautiful picture, these oaks of righteousness in light of 
not only the corrupt depiction of the nation in in Isaiah 59, but really every description of Israel in, in Isaiah so far. If you go all the way back to Isaiah 6, when God first called Isaiah, God said he was going to cut them down like an oak tree so that all is left is the stump. And now we see God is going to take that stump of a people and make them into these towering oaks of righteousness. And the reason for this is so that it will be clear to all that this was God's doing. They are the planting of the Lord. The glory belongs to him. It's not anything that they achieved by their own power. It is God's work for God's glory. We could keep going with this. Uh, Chapter 8, actually, or not chapter 8, verse 8 is significant. Uh, He gives his reason, God does, for this. It's, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. The the root for this redemption is God's own character. As one commentator put it, it's not just that Israel has had enough of suffering and now it's time something went right for them. This is about God's just and righteous character character because of who God is he will deal with the sins of his people and make a new and everlasting covenant with them and it will be plain for all to see in verse 9 that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed God is the one who has given this blessing we could look at 10 and 11 as well interesting profound point I think it's still Uh, I think it's still the anointed uh, Christ speaking here, but I will rejoice in the Lord. And then in verse 11, again, it's God, the Lord God, who will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up. He is the author and object of the joy that we see here in this entire chapter. Last week, if you were here, I, I said that Love is not in the first place something that we achieve, but something we receive from God, as the New Testament says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. I think the same could be said for joy. Joy is not a feeling we are obligated to stir up in ourselves simply because it's Christmas and that's how we're supposed to feel. Joy is God's work in us, and it comes as a gift. The fact that joy is named as part of the fruit of the Spirit underscores the point I'm making that this is the fruit that God's Spirit, God's Spirit, bears in God's people. So it's not an invitation to look deep within ourselves in our quest for joy. It is an invitation to look to God. Joy is the fruit of His work in us. This means that The joy that we're talking about, the joy that the candle over there represents is not something we just naturally find in the world around us or achieve by living our best lives. This joy is a supernatural gift. It comes from God. And that explains why, on the one hand, we can't just will ourselves to be joyful, but it also explains why Christians often are able to know joy even in the face of extreme distress, heartbreaking loss, as many of you I know can testify. Joy doesn't come from achieving the right circumstances or the right state of mind or the right way of looking at things. Joy comes from knowing God. 
our Redeemer. It's not a human achievement. It is a divine gift. So we flip around here back to the beginning again. That gift comes to us here in this life by proclamation. This is the second point, that the joy comes through proclamation of good news. Notice that this is what Christ says, and the portion that he read during his earthly ministry, at the start of his earthly ministry, at that synagogue and in Nazareth, he mostly focused on where he stopped, he focused on the proclamation to bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Other than the binding up of the brokenhearted, those are all ministries of proclamation. And again, Jesus, as he read this, stopped there, stopped at the year of the Lord's favor. He omitted not only the day of vengeance, but also the more concrete gifts that would follow after that, the oil of joy, the garment of praise, especially the restored cities and the double portion of promised land. I think Jesus is being careful not to read parts that would maybe mislead people to think that he was coming at that time to overthrow Rome and make Israel a great nation once again. They still ended up thinking that he was going to do that, of course, uh, but it wasn't because Jesus taught it. But this is another simple uh, feature, but one we don't want to overlook, that here between the already and the not yet, God's gifts come to us through a message of good news, a message that is proclaimed and believed. And that fits nicely with the first point, that this joy is a gift from God rather than a human achievement. If it were a human achievement, God would have given us a set of instructions or rules for finding joy. Instead, this is an an announcement, a proclamation, good news, a gospel. Another way to put this is that the salvation God offers, which includes our ultimate joy, is salvation by grace through faith. God's grace poured out to us in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ the Son. This grace of Christ is announced to us in the gospel, and we receive it through faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. It is through trusting in that word that God speaks to us in the gospel, that we are united with Christ and receive all of the benefits and receive the joy of our salvation. And we want to make we want to make sure we avoid the mistake of making out this joy to be entirely not yet. The gospel is not just an announcement of future blessings. The gospel announces what God has already done for us in Christ and what blessings we receive in him even now. It's not as if we receive zero blessings and benefits now. We're still mostly miserable, but we rejoice because there's a better future. I think 1 Peter is actually helpful here. In chapter 1, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched carefully and investigated. They inquired into what time or circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. 
It was revealed to them, those prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It would be a bit strange, I think, if Peter's point were simply, we are more blessed now because we have a clearer picture than Isaiah and others did of the benefits that we are still waiting to receive. We haven't actually received those benefits any more than the prophets received them. We're just able to talk about them in more detail uh, about what they are. Isn't that great? No, I think Peter's point here is that God's grace has come to us. Peter is crystal clear that there's a not yet. He talks about the inheritance that is kept in, he- in heaven for us. We haven't seen Christ, but we love him. We haven't seen him, but by faith we rejoice with inexpressible joy, he says. But even now, we have received grace that God has already given. God has given his Son. God the Son gave us his life. The Father and Son sent us the Spirit In trusting the gospel of Christ, we receive Christ himself. And as we receive him, we we receive his, his righteousness, his holiness, his redemption. Our sins are gone. We are counted perfectly righteous in Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit and his gifts and fruit and comfort and power. We receive God as our Father in heaven and the privilege of standing before his throne in prayer, knowing we are perfectly beloved as he loves his own Son. Here in this present darkness, we have already received the light of the world. The greatest blessing of the gospel is God himself, and that blessing is already with us, and God is in us, God is for us, and God is working through us. So the greatest gift we could ever receive, we have already received through the good news that is proclaimed to us. God's word is how he makes himself known to us, how he reveals himself to us, how he relates to us in this life. If you want to put it this way, how he gives himself to us. So if you want a practical application here, it would be to make God's word the primary focus of your quest for joy. And I don't mean that there's no other place for other things that we might do to work through grief or stress or depression. I need to get out and take walks every now and then. Exercise is helpful. Therapy, medication even sometimes I think is needed. But to know the joy that God is talking about here, the joy that God has promised... We need to set our hearts and minds on his promises and on who he is, who he has shown himself to be in his word. And I don't just mean a verse a day to keep the gloomies away either. I mean look to God's word to see God's promises, to see God's character, to see God's love for you, to see the redemption he has given you through Christ Jesus searching the depths of his mercy and his grace, seeking fellowship with God through his word. Because the joy of the Christian life is nothing less than the presence of God himself in our lives, God with us. Because God is the one who turns our mourning into dancing. And this brings us to the third and final point about the Savior's song. Final feature to point out. 
and it is what's been called the principle of the great exchange. If you just scan through and, and look at what Christ is, is promising and announcing here, the poor receive good news, captives are give, given liberty, broken hearts are, are healed, restored, mourners are comforted, ashes are exchanged for what the ESV calls a beautiful headdress. Let's just think of that as a crown, because when I think of a headdress, I think of things with feathers, and I'm not sure I want one, but let's, let's call it a crown. Mourning gets exchanged for the oil of gladness, a faint spirit you can trade for a garment of praise. And by the way, putting those things together, the crown, the oil that is used for anointing, and the, the garment, the robe, of praise, it almost seems like coronation imagery, doesn't it? We think of that promise that we will reign with Christ. And of course, the sinful and miserable tree stumps become towering oaks of righteousness, ancient ruins that have been destroyed so long, we think they've always been that way. They are rebuilt as shiny new cities. I guess you could say we're trading our sorrows. This is a significant point to note in a few ways. It's important that the song of joy acknowledges the sorrow that we need to be delivered from. Christ isn't in denial and doesn't encourage denial about the mourning and the ashes and the faint spirit. He doesn't dismiss our sorrows as just an illusion or just a wrong-headed state of mind, nor are they automatically even evidence of unbelief. The fact is that our circumstances do affect us. We're made of earth, going back to Genesis. We are part of this world, and we are affected by what's going on with our, with our bodies, our health, what's going on in our relationships, our finances, our circumstances. The ground is cursed with thorns and thistles, and our labors are filled with pain and futility, and it's just frankly silly to pretend that that doesn't affect us. And that's ultimately why we don't look to our circumstances and our achievements for our ultimate fulfillment. It's why the saints cry out in Scripture, how long? It's why the Psalms model for us a prayer life that includes a great deal of lament. But the main point is not just acknowledging that that's a reality. The main point of Jesus' song is that he is able to reverse all of that sorrow and devastation. He goes point by point through all these different aspects of our sorrows and says he comes to exchange them for joy at every point along the way. Poverty and affliction and captivity and brokenheartedness, faintness of spirit, grief, all the devastation that sin has brought into the world, whatever it is, in the world, in your life, Christ is able to reverse all of it down to the last drop. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. As we mentioned last week, Jesus does this by taking that curse on himself. He rose from the dead, first fruits, first fruits of the new creation. And as we also saw last week, as he took that curse in to the grave, he took on our sins and our sorrows, our pain 
and our condemnation, took those to the grave with him, and by his resurrection, all of those things are overturned for him. He is risen and glorified and exalted and lives a life that is free of the curse, and all of those things are equally overturned for those who trust in him. I am just, I'm fascinated by the image in verse 4 of these ancient ruins that will be rebuilt. Ruins, I mentioned, so old, maybe we, we gave up hope or ever, of ever being able to rebuild them. One of the things I like to complain about, there are several, but one of the things I like to complain about sometimes is I've seen some cheap movies or shows where they're trying to depict life in ancient times, and what they do is they just go to some old ruin and film the movie there as if, you know, this is just what they built like back then. You know, they, they, they just, it's not that they've crumbled into ruin, it's just they happen to like, you know, having half the columns lying on the ground and crumbled stone and nobody has a roof on their house. It's just the way it is, I guess. I wonder how much ruin and devastation in our lives that we just, we kind of get used to. We assume that that's the way it is. I've even heard Christians say that death is just a normal part of life. It's not. It's, it's a ruin that we've just gotten used to because it's been that way for a long time. I wonder how many other countless frustrations and futilities, great and small, we have gotten used to in our lives. Like, We've been driving through life with the parking brake on, and we've stopped even noticing, right? I've never, I've never driven with the parking brake on. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but what does it look like when Christ releases that futility, releases the parking brake, releases us from all of these things we've just gotten used to. I know many of you have testimonies that, that show how you have tasted that freedom even now coming to Christ and, and there is a release from the worries, the cares, the anxieties. What joy will it be then when we are finally free from sorrow and sin and from death once and for all and we taste in its fullness the joy that Christ has allowed us to taste in part here and now. This is the gift of joy that the shepherds first found wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, the gift that God gives us in his Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who does love justice, and righteousness. Thank you that this is who you are, that your character would not allow sin and devastation and sorrow to have the last word. We thank you that you, in love beyond our imagining, sent your only Son to bear our sorrows and the consequences of our sin, to endure such wrath, the anguish and agony that, that he suffered as he cried out in the garden and cried out on the cross, that our God 
eternal son would willingly take on that agony for us to separate himself from joy so that we who deserved what he endured that we might know a joy that is beyond our imagining it truly is beyond our imagining we cannot begin to fathom your love and your grace that you have given to us not because of who we are but because of who you are uh, father i do pray for those here who may be wrestling with the opposite of joy, who may be under distress, stress, wrestlings with uh, anxiety, or uh, for those who are grieving, who especially this time of year feel that loss, the, the emptiness of those relationships loved ones who have been taken away from this life. We pray that by your spirit you would turn our hearts to the promises of your word that we might feel your hand upon us and know the joy that can only come as a gift from you. Help our broken hearts and our faint spirits to rejoice in you as we rest in your unfailing love for us. And as we do, may you be glorified in us. We ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our joy and our Savior. Amen. Amen. The next song we're singing is Joy to the World. So stand with me as we remember the joy that we not only have to look forward to, but the joy that we get to experience now. 